0: Hello, hello, my beautiful friends. It's Isabella Lumbeck here The World Messenger, and I'm inviting you for another epic episode of Legacy Leader Show. And this one is definitely going to be absolutely epic. I'm having a great friend here joining me from Austin, Texas where is a lot of movement going on and we'll find directly from him how is Aston Texas looking these days but he is someone who lived in Europe and as a European I've really loved to hear his background they created amazing series of the books and I cannot wait to share with you the gift I received what books we're talking about obviously as a fantastic author and most recent book that he created that it's called Vodka Hookers and the Russian Mafia but he also has so much more he He's also wellness trainer, speaker, keynote speaker, and so much more that we want to discover right now. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to Joe Serio. Joe, welcome. How are you?
1: Good. Hello. I'm doing great, and very, very happy to be with you.
0: Fantastic. I'm so glad that we could figure this out, that we're making things happen despite disruptions where we might be and the backgrounds and studios. It doesn't matter. It's all about being real right and present. And uh, with that in mind, I mean, you have not only PhD degree, not that you've been also doing a very amazing work for so long, which we will get into it, and also extremely passionate about leadership but you traveled the world and also now you're in hub where so much is happening. So let's go first, where are you are currently? What's going on in Austin? It seems like Austin, everybody's moving there and it's a lot of uh, serial entrepreneurs and innovators. And yes. what is the feel currently? Tell us a little bit from your you know, perspective.
1: It, it's, a, it's, an exciting, it's an exciting place to be. And I'll tell you, you know, I think you and I have this kind of unspoken agreement that we can talk about anything. All right, yeah. So we can talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes. Um, Austin is an amazing city that's growing really, really rapidly and uh, attracting entrepreneurs from all over the country, all over the world. People from California, New York, Illinois, Florida, they're just descending on Texas as a whole and Austin in particular. We have this so-called new Silicon Valley uh, developing in uh, Austin. Uh, it's just, you know, people are getting tired of the cold weather. People are getting t- t- tired of New York City. Uh, people I know who live on Long Island are getting tired of the crowds and the crunch and the cost and the everything else that goes with it. And that's great and wonderful. Uh, there's always a price to pay. And the price that Austin is paying is that it's growing very, very quickly. So that a lot of the wonderful, nice, lovely little things that made Austin attractive in the past are changing or disappearing. For example, Austin calls itself the live music capital of the world. And that's nice and that's lovely. And when I arrived here 10 years ago, I went out and I played music, I played in bars and I I played wherever I could as much as I could. And then I went to Nashville. And when I got home from Nashville, I said, Austin, you have a lot of nerve calling yourself the live music capital of the world because Nashville is amazing. Um, With that said, I do love living here, but it's changing rapidly. The demographics are changing. The security and safety issues are changing. The housing starts are are just exploding, which puts pressure on everything, right? Schools, highways, all the infrastructure, law enforcement, who I work with a lot. Um, So that's that's kind of the feel. I mean, we've we've had a homeless issue. uh, cropping up for the last couple of years. We have a government that people aren't, you know, a lot of people aren't that thrilled about in the city, but you know, it's home and I, I like living here. So uh, there you go.
0: Fantastic. Now one more reason to come and visit now that you painted an amazing picture and I love how you tied to so many actually outlets of your creative expressions. Uh, what I heard you also obviously you playing um, instrument, I believe you're playing guitar, right?
1: I play, uh, mostly when I play out, I'm playing the harmonica and I also play the guitar.
0: Yeah. How did you get into harmonica, first of all? How did you get into music? <laughs> and then governments and government contracting, very specific undertaking there. I mean, it's like such an extreme. So tell us. And then, of course, you studied, you finished your PhD degree, and you have amazing a uh, trajectory there with criminal justice, with leadership and organizational behavior, which I have uh, quite a bit of a background in the same area, but not PhD degree. And I kudos you for studying putting that out. So please, kill. Tell us a little bit what was going on in your mind when you were making all these decisions and how you landed where you are today.
1: You know, uh, it's as many people's lives, maybe most people's lives mine happen by accident. And we kind of stumble our way through, you know, so I talked to so many people. How did you become a cop? How did you become a government employee, whatever? Oh, I needed a job for the summer and I stayed for 20 years, you know, and my life was a little bit different. I always wanted to travel and I always wanted to study language, um, but I also grew up kind of afraid of everything. So, and that's where all the fear in my work comes from. I do a lot of fear work and things around fear because I spent the first half of my life in that headspace. But I got very lucky because when I was in college being afraid of everything, I opened up the course catalog I shut my eyes, I twirled my finger in the air, and put it down on the page, and it landed on a class called, Who are the Soviets? And I took the class, it was all about the Soviet Union. It was, language, it was culture, uh, politics, history, everything except language. And then in the summertime, my father said, if you want to have any chance of understanding these people, you should go study Russian language right now because he was an immigrant from Sicily and he understood the power of language, obviously, as, as you know so well from your personal experience. So I was too stupid to understand that studying Russian was gonna be really hard. So I did it. So I just jumped in and started studying Russian and I got totally addicted to it. Went through college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Look, I was a poli-sci major with no intention of going to law school, which in my mind when I was a sophomore in college meant that I would be totally unemployable. And then I pick up this Russian thing and now I have two majors that will make me totally unemployable. So after college, I went to Moscow and studied for six months at a Russian Institute in Moscow. And then I came home um, unemployable and I got a job at the University of Illinois at Chicago, very surprisingly to me. And that was the job that sent me to Moscow, sent me to work with the cops in Russia and the Soviet Union at that time, sent me to China before all the development you see in China. I I went to China five times and lived there for a year. And and it just was all that. You you mentioned organically earlier that my life was just kind of, I started saying yes at a young age, Mm. purely out of fear, not because I was so smart and philosophical and, you know, secure in myself. I just said yes, because I had no, nothing else to do. Because I didn't, I couldn't do the thing that I wanted to do the most, which was I wanted to be a speaker and I wanted to be a writer. When I was 13, 14 years old, I knew that. But you know, I had that father who was depression a baby and all of that, and he said, no, you can't be a writer. You're not, it won't make you money. So forget about that. And so I ended up going on this big journey around the world for 15 years. Um, and I studied Russian, I studied Chinese. I, uh, I had an internship in the Soviet police for a year in their organized crime control department. Um, I, just, I just kept doing, I just kept saying yes be, because somebody had their hand on my back and mm-hmm. said, go study this. So when I studied criminal justice for my masters, I wanted to be studying history and I wanted to be writing, but I didn't have any strength to really do what I wanted to do. So I just followed what people told me. And what people told me ended up giving me a crazy life with Russia, with China. With I ended up writing, I ended up finding out how books get written and how they get made because we were publishing books in our place in Chicago. Um, it, just, it changed everything, turned me upside down, and it got me introduced to the world of cops and probation officers and 911 and all that. So I just fell into it. I just fell into my life. And uh, it wasn't until probably, uh, to be honest with you, it probably wasn't until about seven years ago or eight years ago. No, no, let's call it 10. 10 years ago, I decided to pull the plug on everything. I, I finished my PhD and said, okay, I can be as teacher, a professor at a university and deal with kids 18, 19 years old for the rest of my life who come to class in their pajamas, who don't do their homework, get assigned to committees that I don't want to be on, deal with faculty who think they know everything but have never left their hometown. It's like, no, I don't want to do that. So I really had to understand what is it that I love? Obviously, as you can tell already in the first 10 minutes, I love talking and, and I love I love teaching. What I got from my family, what I got from my family of 14 is the love of teaching. As the ninth of 12 kids, I'm, I'm down the line of a long list of teachers and my, my parents also in one shape, form or another were teachers and that's, I want to be in the classroom on my own terms, not part of a university, you know, making my three or $4,000 a month. I wanted to be on my terms and see where I could take it and see how much in terms of revenue, frankly, and income, how far can I go with that in terms of really getting to people and turning that switch on for them? How far can I get with that? Can I see people changing their lives because of something I said? And that was it.
0: Wow, what a journey, (laughs) a lot of great information here. And and, and I love how you faced the fear head on and then continued uh, building and having those stepping blocks in process of self-discovery. Because one of the things I learned, um, nothing can really tell us more about what we are capable and what we made unless we allow it to self-discover, right? And SinSecure, perfect example of that. Um, So you've been going from Europe to Russia, to writing, to discovering all of that, and then um, obviously publishing series of phenomenal books, which I will share in a second. But what I wanted just to point out, similarly language, how language different cultures, right, can be amazing assets and how much of that can open the doors, but also those experiences can shape uh, what you're currently doing. But before we dive into that, um, what do you feel like was the most crucial for everybody watching and listening? Uh, when you look back, step in stone for where you are today, beside facing the fears and embracing the change and being willing to put yourself to be vulnerable, what else would you say attributed to that? Because obviously you build those muscles and, and, and you created something super amazing.
1: Uh, Some of it was the people that I was around and you know some people may find this a little bit surprising but the first person who really opened my eyes was a general in the Soviet police who was my boss when I worked at national police headquarters and he was a deputy he was a deputy chief of organized crime control for the entire Soviet Union and I had a chance to spend a lot of time with him. I spent time at his house and in his apartment his wife was my Russian tutor, my Russian language tutor. And um, it turned out that about six months or seven months before I met him, my father died. I was 23, 24 years old. And it turned out that this man's son had died when he was 17. So there's this kind of this thing happening, right? And He was the first, he was the first man I saw personalize and demonstrate philosophical abstract concepts. For example, you used the word integrity earlier. Yes. Right. Integrity, commitment. Like I saw him do things. I saw him live those words. I saw his staff respect him. I saw his enemies, his political enemies respected him. Gangsters respected him because he was he was super bright, super clever. Uh, he was a man's man and a cop's cop. And to see that kind of experience, to have that experience for me in my early 20s, because I had a father who he never had to do anything because he had 12 kids. But when I see this guy Gennady in Moscow leap when his wife calls him from the kitchen. That was a totally foreign concept to me. When I saw him keep his word no matter what, in a lot of ways, that was a a foreign concept to me. You talk about leadership. I had a a chance to watch him. He said, come into my office anytime you want and sit. I was sitting in his office for three, four, five, six hours at a time watching how he worked. That was a huge moment for me, just, just being with him and watching him, that was that was pretty special. Mm.
0: It's so beautiful to reflect back, isn't it? And see who was the pivotal, um, and, 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 and what was the pivotal either step or action or decision, right? Mm-hmm. And as they say, rest is history. And, and with threshold and, and ex, ex, um, obviously magnitude of things that you accomplished since then, and it's so beautiful also to see, because a lot of times people get antsy, wanted to have a solution or choices right away very fast, very quickly. But the reality is it takes the time it takes effort, right? But things always, as they say, happen with the reason and opportunities that you've been presented with, you jumped on. And how many times we left opportunities on the table or, or we felt we we're not ready. And I love what you mentioned earlier also, how much you face the fears. And my book, obviously, is From Fear to Greatness. And, and I can resonate on so many levels with our similar backgrounds and stories. So I wanted to just to show audience here something, guys. I was surprised. I received Santa Claus, amazing gift of all of these books, and then this amazing book right here, which we'll depict here. And I wanted to also introduce you to the series that I'm being uh, given here. Um, which also shows how to be resilient, which I think it's phenomenal Uh, right now, obviously tremendous need as well, how to be also emotionally intelligent, and then how to overcome fear you've mentioned this multiple times and do you mind sharing just that, looking on these three titles and three books together um how did all of this came about and how did you uh push this forward to share this amazing wisdom and publish the series of this phenomenal books here
1: yeah so um because of the experience i had growing up and being afraid of everything. Everything that I do now revolves around fear. So if you look at all those books, all of those books were, they they were not accidental in the sense that they all revolve around fear. So obviously there's the fear book, but the emotional intelligence book is also about fear. It's about when we get inside ourselves, we react in ways we shouldn't, that aren't healthy, whatever else, and our, our emotional intelligence sinks we're not resilient because we're too afraid and we forget about the tools that we could be using to be resilient to work through our stress but we get locked down in that space because we're so freaked out
0: wow uh, time management
1: to- has to do with things like time management has to do with things like procrastination and perfectionism those are all solidly fear-based reactions you know so i wanted to I wanted to tap in there's another book on public speaking right these are all just these are all just kind of almost like symptoms or 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 surface manifestations about what's really going on inside of us so somebody says i'm not afraid of public speaking because they figured out something but they're afraid of something else and yeah. someone who is afraid of public speaking right tear that top layer off and everything underneath is, becomes basically the same. We're afraid of rejection, we're afraid of being left alone.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And I love what you said, how everything is connected and interconnected and depending what stage or what it might be going on. I was looking through all of these uh, obviously books and I was just so impressed how distilled, how to the point they are, how relevant, how timeless, they're absolute evergreen in my mind because um, Things that people were dealing 10, 20, 30 years ago, obviously, and then they're doing and dealing with that today and your generation. And I love what you said, boils back to that fear of being rejected. That is number one fear in my mind and specifically in recent years, uh, even before COVID, but now even more so, and, and how we navigate that. So what would be based on your experience, one of the best ways to navigate and, and, and get over the fear of rejection?
1: Um, so there are a couple of things. One is, let, let me give you a quick example. And Please. and this, this will start to answer the question. So a really bizarre situation happened. I don't want to take up too much time talking about the situation, but it landed me on 48 hours. So the, the TV show 48 hours on CBS found out about the situation it involved a murder it involves all kinds of crazy things. And I knew the murderer, so they called me on to to be on 48 hours. They flew me out to Los Angeles. I'm sitting in the hotel on a Monday morning. They're they're sending the car. And they kept telling me before I got to LA, oh, don't worry, there'll be 15 million people watching. You know, and this this thing is like,
0: Please stop saying
1: that. Yeah, (laughs) please stop saying that. (laughs) Please stop saying that. You know, you're not helping the situation. So one of the things when we talk about resilience and we talk about the fear of rejection and the the package of fears, it's, it's first and foremost in my mind that people really need to develop what I call games. I have a lot of games in my head and it's the games that help me remember what the situation really is, okay? And in this case, the situation really is that I'm going to sit with one person like I'm sitting with you There's going to be a producer standing off to the side, a cameraman, a sound man, and that's it. And I'm talking into a piece of metal, like that's it. So we don't think about 15 million people. We think about having a conversation with one person. So on the bed in the hotel, I went through my games. Okay. One of my games is step number one, breathe. We have to breathe to Turn off the stress response, turn on the relaxation response to clear our minds so that we can think. And remember that the fear that we're feeling is a monster that we focused on so much that we stretched it into this huge creature that doesn't exist anywhere except in our thoughts. So our first job is to breathe so we can start to shrink that monster back down. Number two, I sat there on the bed and I thought about my mother. Mm. My mother who raised 12 kids, she passed away in April of 2019. And this was a year and a half later. And I just, I just took a few minutes to think about her. And that just, it makes me feel better. She always walked around the house humming or singing. And you know, when she had to deal with all my father's crap and, and she had to deal with trying to get 12 kids you know, out the door every morning. She had a lot of tools to help her get through the day. And the third thing I think of, uh, which is personal for me, uh, geographically, because I grew up outside New York City, I think of the World Trade Center. And I think of the World Trade Center a lot. Why? Because those people had a choice, a quote unquote choice. They could either die in a fire on the 85th floor Or they could jump out of the 85th floor window. That's not much of a choice. Okay. But for me, there is nothing in my life that comes close to being that scary. And so I have to sit back and remind myself that whatever it is that I have on my desk, whatever it is I have going on in a relationship or conversation, or workplace, isn't going to come even remotely close to what those people had to deal with. I lost friends from high school in the World Trade Center. I had we, It took us six hours to find my brother who was trapped in one of the buildings. You know He made it out okay. But then you start thinking about, wait a second, who told you that you're going to get 85 years? Who told you you're going to live a long life? So if your God or your creator or your whatever, the universe comes to you one day and says, why are you spending that time watching that episode of Law and Order for the 15th time when you know that you need to be going doing your, your life's purpose? Yeah. Because that's why you're here. And so all of that combined with being very careful about who I keep around me. Yes, I surround myself with people who are fair to me, that are honest with me, and they're supremely optimistic people, because I know that I was born just like I grew up programmed to be negative and to be uh, fearful. And so I can do I can get myself to the point I need to get to a lot on my own. But when I can't, I can't do it all myself. So I'm going to go I'm going to go to a podcast and listen to an inspiring podcast. I'm gonna go to a video and listen to a motivational video. I'm gonna call my buddies who live down the street and go meet them for lunch. Because I know that the rejection thing is also an illusion. Mm -hmm. I thought I was rejected by my father. My father had 12 kids to raise was born and raised in the great depression and had tremendous amounts of fear and i know that my fear of rejection was my inheritance my inheriting the environment that i grew up in and we all do that we do that with our parents we do it with our bosses if we work for someone long enough we inherit their stuff And we have to remember that their stuff was based on their situations and their fears and their experiences. And by the way, all those things about my father had nothing to do with me
0: such a powerful story and thank you for sharing that. Not only the process that it's easy to follow with those three steps, but also to really go back and think about similar stories that single, every single one of us had and, and then really recognize what is it and what is not, right? Facing the fear head on and then figuring out um, what, what what is illusion, as you said, what we misportray uh, mis- and, and how that sometimes not only hold us hostage, but don't not let us to grow and if you stayed there in that mindset, you would not accomplish remotely anything as you did so many amazing things from your education to travel to publications and as well as obviously stages you've been uh, and companies that you've been assisting with. But what I love about how this also distills accumulated back to serve and your service, you do something very unusual. Do you mind sharing a little bit? Besides obviously being published author and keynote speaker, that is very hand in hand. But you're also supporting and helping um, government in very specific types of trainings, and that is kind of really amazing to see. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that?
1: Not at all. Um, I. I wandered into the the space of training probation, okay, and leadership training. I had my ideas for a long time, and it took me a long time to get the nerve to to go do it, which is why my book series is called Get the Nerve. Um, (laughs) And so I started training probation. I stumbled into law enforcement because I had a lot of contacts there. And then one day, a participant in the class comes up to me and she says, I am a 9-1 dispatcher. And I had get sent to these classes because we don't have enough good training that's directed at at us. So, okay, there's a market opportunity. There's a niche that needs to be filled. Let me go, you know, figure that out. So I met a dispatcher from Los Angeles. The two of us set up a company. We started training dispatchers all over the country. I, you know, to be the way I'm wired that if I'm gonna be legitimate about this, now I've got to go into 911 centers. So I've spent more than 100 hours in 911 centers, listening to calls, uh, talking to dispatchers, talking to supervisors. Partly because, by and large, they're kind of ignored. You know, I think I don't know if society thinks they're just, you know, secretaries or you know, clerical, st- you know, answering the phone. They they don't answer the phone. That's not what they do. They do answer the phone, plus about 19 other things. And they're usually doing them all at the same time. They're sitting there with seven, eight, nine screens in front of them. They've got belligerent citizens on the line. They've got other lines ringing. They've got five, six things going on at once. And they try to juggle all this while at the same time they're sometimes listening to people die. While at the same time, they're trying to give instructions to a husband to deliver his wife's baby in the backseat of the car. While they have a four-year-old who is drowning and someone is trying to do CPR. You think about that, like it's the most amazing audience I've met in my life. Like I love audiences and I love speaking with, with groups, but this group in particular, they're amazing and they're fun and they have dark humor just like you would expect and they are overlooked and underappreciated and understaffed and underpaid and i want to bring my training to them you know i train at companies but only when companies ask i don't market to any companies yeah. because by and large companies have tons of training and they've been through college and a lot of a lot of people have master's degrees and whatever else these guys have you know, relatively little comparatively speaking. I love this audience. And one of the things that I, that I realized, I've been to a lot of leadership trainings and in my mind it's kind of a line, right? And above the line is, you know, let's talk about the ideal characteristics of a leader. And what are the you know attributes and you know all that you've you've been through that before? I mean everyone's been through that before if they've been to a leadership program, and they do the DISC uh, you know assessment and they do other personality profiles and all that thing. Great, wonderful, fantastic. I wanted to occupy the space below that line. And the space below that line is who is showing up to your organization. What is the stuff that you're hanging on to from childhood? from whatever, from adolescence, from trauma, from lousy marriage, I don't care what it is. I wanna dig into that. Mm -hmm. Because if you turn on the light a little bit, and we're not talking about therapy, and we're not talking about you know, drilling down to the very depths, but at least to increase that self-awareness so they can see why they've been doing, why they've been making the choices they've been making, why are they showing up as the gossiper and the criticizer and the blamer and they're deteriorating the morale and the environment of their own place. So I wanted people to go inside themselves, remove from the inside out. And I want dispatchers and cops and government employees to go inside and move from the inside out and make it about ourselves first, to say, "Oh, how am I contributing to this?" bad situation how am i being negative influence on the people around me
0: that is brilliant and i'm glad you shared that because specifically we're talking about a very specific group that does that but so many others in regular organizations are going through a lot of, of that and we see more conflicts, conflicts are elevated. We're seeing more uh, you know, people fatigued, uh, burned out, and uh, sometimes acting and lashing out and behaving that, that even sometimes they will say, I don't know where this came from. This is not usually me, right? So how important it is to also self-reflect and pause. And I just really wanna kudo you for amazing work that you do because we need whatever we can to bring those skills in uh, environments to make things better. And you're one of those people who always look at how can I improve? How can I make things better? How can I contribute? And that's what's really all about. So uh, thank you for sharing that. So now if you don't mind, I would love to uh, jump into something that I'm sure so many are curious about, which is this book. Um, And I know you talked about your experience in being in such a close proximity with some of the top people in Russia in terms of their Uh, work and and security and safety and KBG and all of those things that we watch in the films, we hear it directly and growing up in former Yugoslavia. I had my own fair share of of understanding what's going on there during the 80s and 90s, right? And collapse of former Yugoslavia and Soviet Union help and all this crazy stuff. So um, how this all came about, and I just wanted to say for everybody that didn't have a chance to look at, Uh, This book yet on Amazon, I will highly encourage as well as his amazing series here again, um, to get to nerve and step up and do something that I found again, tremendously tremendously helpful, even if it's just the one of the series so please jump in.
1: So, um, I stumbled onto Russian as we were talking about the the boss that I had at the University of Illinois used to be a cop in New York City. He was a police detective in NYPD. He got his PhD. He became the vice chancellor of the University of Illinois at Chicago. And he set up a center called the Office of International Criminal Justice. And, and just, he just sent people all over the world. He sponsored scholarships and, and you know, um, people conferences and whatever. Uh, and he was crazy. He was a little bit nuts, right? So he, uh, he sponsored, he co-hosted a conference in Cairo with the Egyptian police, just to give you a quick little thing about how nuts he is. He was at the conference in Cairo, leaves, goes to Tunisia, lands at the airport. Somebody with a 44, a 44 a Mercedes and can't speak much English is at the airport in Tunisia to pick him up and drives him three hours into the desert. And my boss had an interview with Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat, the head of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. And and so that's the kind of guy he was. And then he comes back to Chicago and puts the photo of him and Yasser Yasser Arafat right on the cover of the university newspaper which started demonstrations and protests and, you know, so that's the guy I worked for, okay. So, uh, so, so he said, um, okay, well, I don't have any contacts in the Soviet Union, so go to China. And he sent me to China for six months. And then when I was away, he made contacts in the Soviet Union, sent me to work with the police. Um, I came back and finished my master's degree and then I moved to Moscow. I left University of Illinois and I moved to Moscow on my own and just started trying to, I, I didn't know anything about doing business. I came out of all academic environment. So I just went to Moscow and tried to do business and some things worked and some things didn't. I, I worked with corporate clients uh, to help them get information that they couldn't get, You know, who are their partners, background investigations, things like that, because I had those connections in law enforcement. And then I was uh, sent to Moscow to be the director of the Moscow office of the world's leading corporate investigation and business intelligence firm. So my job and the job of the office, and there are only about five of us, so it wasn't a very big office. It was to keep American and European companies that were investing in Russia out of trouble. And when they got into trouble, to get them out of trouble. So sometimes that meant
0: out of the trouble.
1: <laughs> sometimes that meant, you know, going to the airport in the middle of the night under armed guard to get the families out safely. You know, when there's a mafia group banging down the doors of our clients, you know, it was, it was whatever. Whatever came across our threshold is uh, what we had to do because we were a small office. So sometimes, honestly, it was uh, bodies chopped up. I don't get too graphic, but sometimes it was just a murder. Sometimes it was, you know, mutilation. Sometimes it was a missing person. Sometimes it was uh, background investigation. Sometimes it was racing people to the airport in the middle of the night. So, but here's one thing I learned, the big takeaway for me from a leadership and from a self-leadership perspective, I learned in Moscow that when things get crazy, I get more and more calm which I did not know about myself. I get, I get thoroughly relaxed because I know that decisions have to be made and I know that resources have to be assembled to solve whatever the problem is, right? And the problem is not about me. I have to, you used the word earlier, it's a role of service. You have to serve your clients to keep them safe and you marshal all, all the forces that you can to make that happen. So the first week that I was in this job, one of the tw- a 26-year-old employee of our client was arrested by the KGB and was going to be brought up on espionage charges. So that got a little bit crazy, you know? So it was just, okay, maybe that's where I learned all the breathing as I started breathing. Okay, just breathe. Just take 30 seconds at your desk and just breathe. Clear your mind. Keep your IQ high. Because when we start panicking, our, our, our IQ falls and we can't think straight. We actually lose IQ points, so we have to make sure we stay calm, keep our IQ up, think about what's really happening here, and go solve that problem. So that was uh, that was a ton of fun. I don't know what to tell you. It was the, the, I was there for most of the '90s, and it was, you know, other than driving a cab in New York, which I've also done, uh, it was the most fun job I've ever had. So it was, I don't know.
0: That is an amazing story again, and experience and being in the midst of that. And I'm sure a lot of the reflection, what you experience, uh, that is what we can find. And I just started reading, so I did not finish reading the book, but is a lot of, of that really uh, reflecting on what you experienced during those stunts and in portraying that through really interesting lens?
1: Yeah, that book is uh, 99% accurate. So people ask me, people ask me, you know, You know, it's a it's a novel. No, it's not a novel. It's it's basically a memoir slash detective story, because all these things are lead up to some place at the end of the book. Yeah, kind of a surprising place. But um, so no, it's you know there's a little bit of literary license, but that that story is you know ninety nine percent true
0: amazing so for everybody again to love the grid story wants to learn what really has happened happened during the time in 90s in russia and kgb and all the suspense and crazy stuff please go for it because honestly it's it's a thriller and it's a great great read um so i'm again i'm super super grateful and, and and excited to continue reading but also grateful to get that as a gift i mean you are amazing and with that in mind i mean you walk let street... me, go, go ahead let
1: me just say very quickly while we're thinking about it um a shame a shameless commercial plug uh, if if your viewers would like an autographed personalized hardback of that book yes vodka hookers vodka is the place to get it Fantastic.com.
0: And we'll we'll get to that in a second again and we'll repeat and I will have definitely written down so that everybody can go to it and make it happen. Um, But if you don't mind, it seems like you did so much already, Joe, I mean, given how you, where you were raised, and how big a large family you've been a part of, and and what you learned from them, and everything else uh, in life that accumulated to be who you're here today, you already have phenomenal legacy and trajectory, how many lives you impacted, so I'm curious what is still left in bucket list? And what would you like your legacy to be? What would you like to be known for? Because it seems like it's just so many parts of you and all of them amazing and outstanding, but what Joa is about.
1: Yeah, uh, so let me just say, uh, before we go on, that uh, I, there's no way I could do what I've done without my parents having been who they were. Mm. It's easy to talk about the fear part, but the fact of the matter is, there were a tremendous number of seeds that were planted by my father and my mother that helped me to see the world in a certain way. That helped me to create all those books—not just create those books, but we did all those—all the books that you have in front of you. We did ourselves. You know, all of them are self-published. All of them we, we designed and did everything ourselves. So, um, so I have to say that, and that in terms of their legacy, you know, and, and their legacy of raising kids and everything. Um, so, the big thing on my plate right now is uh, I'm expanding my work with 911 dispatch and now focusing on organizational culture and creating special programs for directors of 911 dispatchers because I want to create a way, a plan, a blueprint for transforming 911 centers so that they can have what they deserve and they can be who they are able to be that they can be there for each other to not regret going into work or not be annoyed going into work or understand how to handle the stress of those calls, the accumulated stress over time, the burnout, all those things. And there are comm centers, communication centers that are amazing. And I wanna take what they do and what they've done and use those as ways to model the way for other centers, so that nine one one can be even more awesome than they are already. Uh, in terms of me, I, I don't, I don't ever think about that. What I want my legacy to be, I, you know, I've thought about that question only from this perspective. When you work in the in in the uh, academic world, people will say, "Oh, he made a contribution to the field," and all the articles that he wrote. Well, we don't sit writing articles saying, I'm making a contribution to the field, right? We don't, we don't think like, that's for other people to decide, right? So I don't think about legacy at all, ever, about, about me, about how I want to be remembered, or I want my name on the side of a building. Like none of that has any real meaning to me. I just don't think about it. I just, here's what I do think about. I have three pillars of my business. One is my activity has to make sense from a business perspective. The second is it has to be fun. It has to be fun for me. It has to be fun for the audience. It has to be, you know, so I play the harmonica during my classes as part of the class. I show family photos and talk about the family because it's different. And the third pillar is it has to have the content has to have the uh, possibility of changing somebody's life that has to be engaging to the point where they can get it and get it easily and digestible digestible and they can go off and change their life that's my whole game
0: which is literally summing it your legacy which is fantastic and i love what you said it's not about building your name just so that you that feeds it ego, for example, a plaque on the building or whatever, a lot of people have a very specific ways what it is, but more and more people are thinking, you know, what can I contribute? What can I do? Where can I impact more? And where can I serve the best? And, and obviously, that is fantastic trajectory. So we cannot say how much we wish you continuous ongoing success and how super excited i'm to have you back and have a follow up conversation because we just scratched the surface here guys right isn't it great to hear from joe and everything he has to share with all those amazing stories in closing joe if you don't mind just uh, for everybody watching and listening what would be your piece of advice because you not only grew exponentially emotionally mentally physically Psychologically, obviously, you push yourself further, you put yourself in those vulnerable positions and situations. What would you just suggest um, for anybody that is going through fear and need to break through or going through a lot of change and they're not sure uh, where to start. I mean, you already explained some of the elements, but what would be just in a closing something that they can say, hey, man, I would love to follow your footsteps or I would like to at least get some of the wisdoms and what that would be.
1: Yeah, uh, so number one is go find other people who are doing what you want to do and go ask them. They'll tell you how to do it. Number two, um, be careful about rumination, right? Rumination, just thinking and thinking and revisiting bad things and revisiting bad things. Um, nine, nine and a half times out of 10, action is going to be better than getting stuck in the emotions or getting stuck in your past. So just do something, do something, you know? So go find people that are doing what you do. Um, don't get too stuck in it. And go act. Action is, is far more valuable than trying to figure everything out. Uh, and one last thing that I'll say is, when I start some of these things, when I start playing the harmonica, for example, I started playing the harmonica because I wanted to play the guitar. Okay, you go figure out that logic. <laughs> so I started playing the harmonica. What people didn't tell me and what people don't tell us is where we might end up. When I started playing the harmonica, I didn't know that I was going to play for cops in Warsaw and for KGB agents in Moscow and in a nightclub in London and for ha- in a house party in Paris and on the second biggest stage in Nashville and record on a CD and whatever else. Like, uh, don't stop, do not stop yourself. The biggest annoyance I have in my life right now is that I started everything so late. Mm-hmm. harmonica was after 30 the guitar was after 40 the first book i published uh, on russia i was 48 i think you know don't wait do not wait the chinese proverb about when's the best time to plant a tree the first you know first first time is 20 years ago and the next best time is now so if you missed that 20 years ago fine do it now
0: I love it. That is such amazing advice. And I agree. Specifically after we have how life goes very, very fast and, and, and quicker, sooner, better. Yeah, we do. It's all about that amazing action. That is fantastic advice, honestly. I was like, I needed to hear this, Joe. You don't have no idea how much. Uh, with that in <laughs> mind, for everyone that don't have a privilege to be connected with you on Facebook and LinkedIn, like as I do, and know you for years, how amazing you are. Uh, what would you like for audience to do besides to obviously go to Amazon and get all of these great books? Uh, where else would you like them to go to, to connect with you and uh, you mentioned a personalized autograph of this amazing 99% accurate personal story in this book. I mean that is amazing deal guys. So where they should go.
1: So for the book, it's vodkahookers.com
0: Okay
1: vodkahookers.com uh, my government website is glttraining.com that uh, stands for government leadership training uh, josario.com is my general website for non-government training it's easy to find me on facebook on linkedin on twitter uh, it's joe at joe speaks uh, just super super simple to find me and i'm pretty accessible um so if people want to reach out reach out
0: fantastic and he's all over the social media and guys if you wanted to hear some more stuff yes he will be back but please take a look and check what he's already done and um looking forward again to have you back thank you so much for your time and being here with us today
1: thank you i loved it thanks